encouraged to uh, to see the diversity geographically. I was thinking that for most, it's probably the furthest west you've ever been to come out here. But uh, some <laughs> even have headed further. Come come east uh, to, to head here, so that's nice. But um, for those uh, that have never come along the M2, never realised that it came this far. Um, it's nice to have you along. You've never even seen the M7. It's just uh, just a stone's throw from here. Here we are in Western Sydney. And I appreciate you coming along to, to where we are today. Just um, looked out well for me on this busy day. This is the land right here in the the mortgage belt uh, of Western Sydney here that has, the, this is the area that has the highest car ownership per capita of any part of the nation. Um, we don't believe in trains out here, <laughs> so, at least the previous state government didn't, and uh, so it's car central, but it's, um, but it's in many ways the heartland, you know, and we, we've set up some research rooms here, as you can see, because a lot of the, you know, the commercial world wants to understand what's happening in the suburbs and, and from Rouse Hill and Kellerville and Quakers Hill and all, all out this way is the growth area and um, you know, a lot of families setting up and trying to work out um, you know, what's what making their decisions and obviously companies have an interest in that. But what we're doing today is far more important than that. It's interesting and I think um, uh, quite contrasting that in this room we conduct a lot of commercial research but where the money ends or where there is no target market or where uh, there is no interest commercially in a group, uh, then, then obviously there's no commissioning of research. But all of us here in the room um, have an interest beyond the money, beyond the finance, to, to, to hearts and souls and attitudes in terms of lifestyles and, and ultimately you know, spiritual uh, direction and decision. So, um, so it's, it's the key stuff that we're discussing. Well, I find that, um, that in this analysis of trends and just observing society, I'm sure as we all do, because we're all social analysts, we're all observing our times um, so that we can effectively reach and evangelize and, and church plant. But, but it's only occasionally in history that you get the massive changes that we're seeing now, massive demographic change, combining with, with, with massive generational transfer and right at the moment, massive technological shifts. Um, and the interaction of these major trends does <coughs> redefine society in a very short period of time. And I guess in that, in that sociological sense, uh, you know, the world is spinning faster than ever before. So I think it is key for us all to, to just you know, step back and, and observe these shifts and, and, and see where we're all going. So um, I guess by way of intro, I, I think that, you know, in terms of observing change, we... We tend to immediately think about the technology. In fact, we even define the emerging generations with technological labels, the dot-com kids or the click-and-go generation, the digital natives. These terms um, highlight the impact of technology in their world, and, and of course that is key. Uh, and if we think about change in our society, um, technology is, is, is that key driver. You know, the iPad 2 out less than a year after, you know, the original iPad now being rolled out through schools. Scott mentioned this education, the, the future forums we run. We've got an education future forum coming up um, in a month and a bit. And, and just our initial research and the people we've got on board just talking about how much technology is transforming learning in the classrooms and, and obviously how young people engage. You know, smartphones, apps, Android. We weren't discussing this a couple of years ago. It wasn't on the wasn't part of the, the mainstream use and now of course it, it's everywhere. I was talking a couple of weeks ago to the for client Sony and the chief technology officer there um, was telling me that they have 22 models of televisions for sale in Australia, Sony do, and 20 of them are now IPTV or smart TV as they call them. You plug them in not just to the power of the aerial but to the internet and your channel surf not just through TV, the free to air channels, um, but through these internet <coughs> channels. And now, and the government was was part of this this research project we were involved in, and, and they're they're struggling to keep up because they've got broadcast rules around what can be shown on TV and ratings and how much Australian content has to be produced. And you, you flick the channel up a few, and then there's internet TV, which has no such restrictions. And so this convergence of technology changes government policy, changes how we interact. So only talk about creating lean-forward TVs rather than lean-back TVs because they're all internet-enabled, they've, they've got Skype, they've got social media. Um, you, you interact with them, it's not the passive box of the past. So, so that even changes how we engage. The, 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 that premium screen in the, in the house 
uh, changes even how we interact and, um, and technology is key there. But I want to say that technology is just the what. Technology is just in many ways the, the marker of the changes. It's the flag, if you like, of the shifts that we see. There's even more interesting things going below the technology and that's the why we're using it and how we're using it and how it's changing us and how it creates networks and connections and relationships and, and uh, decisions. And so... And so that's not the what, it's the why, it's the sociology, it's the social trends, it's the influences and the attitudes. But even beyond the what we have and use and why we use and how we use it is the who we are, and that's the demography. And, and so what I've done is uh, just put five, if you like, um, mega trends down here that deal with these inner issues, the sociology and the demography of, of a changing Australia. And the first is the changing of our population. And this, um, this little population map has a fair bit of information in it that defines our nation today. And I think starting at that macro point, you know, is a good, is a good place to start for us as church planners, just to get a sense of, of where we are, of our numbers and where it's going. This time next year we'll have surpassed 23 million people in Australia. Um, this time next year the world will have surpassed 7 billion souls. So massive growth and increases. I just saw that SBS logo the other day, um, six billion stories and counting. So we've got about 10 months now to upgrade that logo <laughs> for the seven billion. But, you know, we often get left behind uh, in terms of the, the growth because we, you know, it's, it's obviously increasing all the time and we miss it. Um, one in three Australians living in, in New South Wales here. We saw a good victory last night, which was, which was <laughs> nice. One in five living right here in Sydney, you know. If... If, if Sydney, we, we think of Australia compared to our land size as being you know, a smaller end of the, of the sort of nations of our world in terms of population, but if Sydney was a city in the US, it would be the United States' 10th largest city. That's the size of a, of a city like Sydney, four and a half million people, a fifth of our population. So, so it's a story of, of growth, it's a story of, um, of capital city-centric population, but it's a story that's changing because the growth of the inner regional areas, both the coastal areas and the tree change areas, um, just over the Great Divide or within an hour of the capitals, are growing at the same rate as our capital cities, um, which is growing, which are growing at, at a faster rate than the world average. So we're a growing nation, the cities are growing, the, the regions close to the cities are growing, and there is a lot going on there. Um, but probably one of the, the key points to mention about our population is the change in makeup of it, particularly as far as age is concerned. So if we go back four decades, this was the population pyramid. This is how we looked. And that pyramid term is, is an apt label because you can see a very clear pyramid shape. More younger people, and as you move up, fewer older people. And, and in many ways, our ministries um, mirrored that. You know, strong focus on on children's work and then something on youth. By the time you're into the young adults, you know, it, it, it sort of faded away a little bit. But and, and you know, often not not great intentionality in in, in uh, programs for for older people. But if we if we wind the clock forward four decades to today, that's our population. So you can see that it's lost its rectangular. It, it's gained a rectangular shape. It's lost its pyramid shape, and uh, and it's filling out there in the middle and, and, and older ages. This is a this is the ageing of our population. This is the, the longevity rates that we see. But let's wind the clock forward four decades to get a, a mid-century perspective <coughs> of our population. And you can see how it's changing there and, and indeed becoming almost slightly inverted with, with more older people even than and certainly middle-aged people than younger people. So so the, the dynamics of change, the, the shifts in our population continue apace and that ageing is a key theme currently. Now, keep in mind that when we talk about the ageing of the population, it's not um, as if we've got fewer young people than we used to have. You can see, as we go from today forward, every age category is growing. Mm. Um, there are more young people today than ever before. In fact, we have a whole generation, and on the map, Bob, back of the maps here, you've got the, the generational profiles. You know, our largest generation ever are the baby boomers. And you can see the birth rate shot up um, straight after the end of World War II. And it uh, it remained high. In fact, it, it, it hit a it hit an all-time high at the time in the in the 1950s. Um, uh, in terms of birth numbers, in a single year, it peaked at 250,000 births. Well, last year in Australia there were 300,000 births. 
So the point is that there is a bigger baby boom now than that original baby boom. And that is creating, of course, more infants and children than our nation has ever seen. So, uh, and, and of course, over the next decade or two, more young people, more young adults than ever before. That's the growth in the young, but also growth in the old. Put down just a, a summary then of a couple of these demographic points. We've got a population that's ageing but continues to grow. We've got, with that, a workforce that is ageing but is also shrinking uh, relative to the population. Now, I'll bring up this second point because uh, what we have, uh, the church has relied on, on volunteers, the church has relied on paid staff. And just as there are some shortages in the workforce, in the commercial world, relative to the growing demand in terms of the population, so the church is facing some of those same staffing shortages. Here's um, some data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Today, for every retiree, you've got five people in the working age population. But by mid-century, you can see the ratios basically will have halved. For each retiree, we'll have just 2.7 people in the working age population. So that's the uh, that's the the growth of the national population, but relative to that, the shrink of the working age population. Mm. Can I ask a quick question? So you're you're assuming that the birth rate is going to drop significantly? Well, notice. Uh, no, I, I mean this is based even on our growth rate, which actually went up since 2001. We're up to just on two babies per woman as a total fertility rate. What, what this indicates is that we, we hit the lowest birth rate ever about a decade ago, 2001, 2002. It's increased since then. But, bef but by mid-century, we're still, we, we've got the growth and the ageing. We, we, um, we we're entering this ageing, which is going to continue to remain a bit of a challenge over the next few decades. Sure. But the workforce um, is not going to, is just not keeping pace. I'll give you a, a statistic from last from the last calendar year, uh, 2010, the national population, I put it on the map, grew by just over 450,000 people. Okay, But the working age population grew by 150,000 people. So we've got all these births and we've got all these retirees. You can see this, this, this glut um, of boomers as it moves through. We've got more people retiring than ever. But it's going to take a little while for the new births to flow through. Sure. And that's part of the, the demographic point there. What's the assumed retirement rate then, Mark? Well, that, that's a point to, to keep in mind. The, the ABS has still conducts uh, their, their figures based on uh, a working age of 15 to 64. Right. Okay. Now, the average age of, a, of an Australian person starting full-time work is 19.6. Okay, so you need to add five years to the, the working age population there, and we're not going to be hitting our early to mid-60s and retiring either. We're going to work well beyond that. So if we if we adjust if we get a, a new definition, you know, it's going to change it a little bit. But I guess the point is that um, that we have a population that is growing uh, more than ever, and and some ageing of it. Now we're not on the uh, extreme end of ageing as we see in Japan, where they've got some population contraction. Uh, we're not even on the steep ageing curve that China has because of a one-child policy. We're doing okay because of our fertility rate. Uh, but even so, the ageing is, um, is catching up with this. It's a good news story. People are living longer. I mean, it's fantastic. Uh, but it has implications in a workforce area. I think it creates great opportunities in the church in terms of volunteers and, um, and, and, and second or third careerists, you know, looking to move into ministry. Um, but it's clearly something to understand. So we've said population changes, growth, workforce shifts, shrinkages uh, in, in a ratio sense growing cultural diversity, so one in four of us uh, was not born in Australia currently, nationally. If you include those with a parent born overseas, we're talking about 40% of our total population. Uh, so, so massive cultural diversity um, added to that, increasing <coughs> geographical shifts, so people are moving more frequently and, and the church has been based on, on being you know, a local church and connecting with people who live in that area and we, we build a relationship over time and that's that's great. But we do need to understand that people vocationally and geographically are more mobile in Australia today. So Australia has a national voluntary turnover rate averaging 15%. Okay, so in your average organisation, 15% of the staff move on annually um, on average. Now. Some industries that I've done some work in, like call centres, have a voluntary turnover rate three times that. Mm -hmm. Other sectors that have an older age uh, have more of a, of a retention. But 
but we're averaging 15%, which, which means if you, if you multiply that, it means the average person average tenure is about three years per role. So if you have someone in your staff that's been there four years, they're above average, you know, and then they move on. Um, three years is about the average today. So we move jobs more than ever before. And we're going to see that more with the young people coming through. But this geographical mobility is also worth highlighting. It was um, in the Social Trends report of last year that the ABS stated that the median length of time Aussies have now lived in their home is five years, just over five years, which is about two years less than it was at last count, um, or about, um, about two decades ago. So the rule of thumb that real estate agents have used is that you know, people stay about seven years per home. Well, it's now dropped, as I said, about five years. So if you take your average unit block in your area, your average street, Half of the people have been there more than five years, but half have been there less than five years. That is the turnover rate. So we've got to engage and re-engage because that's the churn that we're seeing. And, uh, and that, that has implications. The, the ABS Social Trends Study talked about the impacts of this increased moving, this increasing mobility, and that is that it, it, they, they highlight a sense of less connection with local community. People feel less safe in their area. People don't know their neighbours as much. People are always seeing for sale signs out the front of the unit. People, people are seeing people coming and going. It gives a sense of, I've lost control of my neighbourhood. I don't know who's here. There are strange faces all the time. I feel that crime is higher. Um, and we know from the national crime data that most crimes have actually been heading south. Um, but uh, the perception is that crimes are worse than ever. So, so all of these figures, I guess, while. Uh, statistics and headline figures that have key implications for us all in terms of what we do. I, I thought I'd um, read uh, this verse in um, telling verse in um, Colossians chapter four, where Paul is um, asking for the, the church to pray for him, and he says. And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. So that's that's our first prayer, isn't it? God open doors. But then he says this, and pray that I might proclaim it clearly as I should. I think that's the second imperative that comes. We've got to pray that God will open the doors. When he opens the doors, we've got to pray that we can be those clear proclaimers of it, as we should be. And I think that the more we can understand who we are dealing with, our nation, the demographics, the more we can work out, okay, well, how can I clearly proclaim it? Now, the title on that first slide said changing times but enduring truth. So the truth, the message, what we're proclaiming doesn't change. Um, I think even some of the basic blueprints of, of the Church of Christ <coughs> and how it is to operate doesn't change. We've got some clear instructions on a lot of that. But I think how we engage, how we communicate uh, is dependent on the people with whom we're communicating, our, our society, and that is changing. Which brings me to trend number two. Uh, of so this. can I just ask you a question there? You're saying that if, you're saying houses turn over every five years. So what you're saying, if I was to apply this on the ground where I am, I'd say that continuing to door knock means that every five years I get a, a whole new wave of people that I haven't contacted before and a whole new opportunities for the gospel. Yeah, that's so right. That's actually excellent. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, th I think it is. I think it highlights that we've got to be more regular in, in engaging. Yeah. We can't assume that it's a stagnant marketplace, that this, this catchment audience that we have knows about us, we're the church on the hill, we've been there forever, yay, we're the... People, people who, you know, people have been in your suburb for 25 years. That's fine. They know about it. But for every person that's been there for 25 years, there's a person that's been there for one year. You know, to give us that five-year average. So, so that's the churn factor we see. And and in fact, if you think about the three factors that drive housing mobility, there are three factors we're going to see more of. The, the, the ABS data makes it clear that there is high mobility among in, in medium and high-density housing compared to the leafy suburbs, and that's self-evident. And that's what we see more of the growth in our capitals and the growth in medium and high density housing. Regardless of whether you rent or own, there's just a higher turn in, in units. Second factor driving is, is that it's higher amongst renters than owners, and that's also just obvious. And what do we see more of, particularly with the next generation, lifetime renters, people that will rent um, through their life or rent later in life before owning, and so higher turn. And thirdly, because of affordability, even those buying a home don't buy that family home like our parents did and then start the family in that home, raise the kids in that home, become empty nesters in that home. Now, my parents did it, your parents probably did it, but it's not happening today. People can't afford to, to buy and keep that home. So they buy the unit, they start the family, they outgrow it, they buy the, the three-bedder unit, and, and, and away they go. So, so with that as the new approach to the Aussie dream, 
um, then it means we do have renters and owners, we do have the churn, we do have this this changing catchment. Uh, therefore, it does give an imperative for us to re-engage. You're also saying they're disconnected from their community. And, uh, Christian communities have a real opportunity to connect people with real with real community in, in the way that a normal suburb doesn't. Yes. And so that's another opportunity as well. Yes, it is. In fact, and we could dig deeper on all this sort of stuff, but, but I guess let me just at this point, and then we might pick up on, on some of these points later in our discussion, but the majority of people who <coughs> make a move move to the move within the same suburb or to an adjoining suburb. So what we now have is a loss of that, that micro-community, your street, your, your block, your, your very local area within walking distance, but a growth of the regional community. So if you look at who wants to be the third place in our society today, you know, who, who has a stated ambition of being the place that you go that's not home and it's not work but it's that place of community, it's Westfield. That's what they, and Stockland, you know, they develop communities. They, they are the third place. Famously, um, Starbucks in the US had that as their mission statement. We want to be the, the third place. Um, uh, and, so the, and so the third place has become commercialised, but there's been good traction there because people don't know their neighbours, but they can get this vicarious community by going to the Starbucks or <coughs> Gloria Jean's here or the Westfield. And, and even if they move from this suburb to that suburb, they chances are don't change the shopping centre. And they probably don't even change the kids' school and, and, and perhaps not even um, you know, some of those services that they have. And I think that's where the church sits. So we can offer that community and that stability amidst this churn. And they might move, you know, in, in my language, from Westburn Hills to Castle Hill or maybe even Borkham Hills or even out to, to Rouse Hills. But, but still, if you've got a church in, in the hills... Uh, it's still going to be relevant, and, and so it is in your area. So, so, so I think thinking regionally is key. There's stats for people not changing shopping centres. That's, that's kind of key for church planners, just back on Westfields. Yes. Well, you sit in that in that sort of category in, in, yeah. in so many senses. Um, so, yeah, we've done a lot of... Uh, I've got a report that, that we've conducted for Stockland in that area, you know, mm. and... Uh, we just had the, um, the the land comp conference uh, last month out at um, Homebush Bay, and, and in, in the new <coughs> development um, philosophy is is developing you know, these, these regional hubs of belonging because they know people are going to meet different needs within that area. Um, so so it's a shift from the local to the regional. I think mm. that's that's what we need to understand. So we've got transitioning generations, and uh, and, and that's that's partly outlined on that on that uh, generational profile. Let's just think, uh, if we add the layer in of, of the generations and their involvement in the church, what do we have taking place? Well, the builders' generation, I think, are absolutely labelled because they have been the builders of our society, our churches, our communities. Um, you know, after the Great Depression, all that parents certainly raised in those years uh, and post-World War II years, and that, that, that early... Uh, experience impact this austerity generation that, that shaped them, they, they became builders and, and they continue to build and contribute but we're talking about 14% of the population but 27% of the church population so they're a valued generation in the church obviously and they're, they're well represented in the church um, you can see that they're easing out of the workforce uh, I put down extra data on this by 2020 they'll be zero in the, in the workforce Okay, eased out is <laughs> a, a, a blunder way of putting it uh, they won't be around at all in a decade from a working perspective so so that's where they sit but again that's the opportunity to connect with them uh, in their post working lives uh, we're talking about a generation who want to build and contribute and uh, they can be involved in, in church ministry but, but keep in mind, you know, what's going to be the replacement there as, um, as they ease out um, of, of the church, as they, as they head, well, we're talking about mid-60s, but many of them are in the late 70s and, and 80s. Um, how's the baton passing going on? The baby boomers are next, 24% of the population, but interestingly, well, I think we sometimes forget this, they're even more represented in the church than they are demographically, so they've got an even larger church population footprint than national population footprint uh, and they're well represented in the workforce. You can see in this chart that they're going to ease out of the workforce as well. They go from 35, 36% currently to 15% within a decade. So they're uh, passing on the baton there as well. Gen X has come next. 
21% of the national population, 17% of the church population, so slightly underrepresented now. Um, and you can see the, the trend line starting to develop here, um, but very much in the workforce. I mean, that's the key social bottleneck through which they pass. It's not the church anymore. Um, you know, community needs are being met in the workplace. Uh, another client, we've done a lot of um, work with, with some different developers, but one developer um, designs a lot of building, um, uh, commercial buildings, including this one they built, FKP, and, um, and we did some research for them just so they can understand the, uh, the workplace of the future. And, uh, and if, you, if you look at what's happening in the commercial world, in many ways, companies are becoming that third place. Uh, you don't have to give at the church because there are corporate giving programs. You don't have to volunteer with your local community group or church group because you volunteer part of Westpac, but they'll fund you a number of days a week to go and volunteer in, in your preferred charity. Um, the, the life coaching, the direction in life, you know, it's not meant pastorally, it's meant through the, the team building, the life coaching often in the, in the corporate world. And even, even um, you know, the, the self-actualization that Maslow talked about, the, the being all you can be, the, the workplace recognizes that work-life balance and, and, and um, achieving uh, a broader set of goals and ambitions is considered healthy. In other words, the commercial world has broadened from its fair day's work for fair day pay transaction to, to meeting the broader needs of people um, as we've become less connected from these other community um, infrastructure. And, and uh, I think the church now has competitors in that space. That's, that's the point there. Well, we've got Generation Y that come next, 21% of the <coughs> national population, but half that as far as the church population is concerned. And, uh, and moving into the workforce in a big way as well. So they're, they're stepping up into the workforce and going to double their proportionate share of the workforce in the next decade. I guess the question is what's going to happen as far as their involvement in the church. So what we have here is from that oldest generation of builders that are double represented in the church compared to their national numbers to the Gen Ys that are half represented in the church, we've got this, this downward um, trend line in terms of our connection. And the big question for us all and the, the future um, projection is yet to be fulfilled or, or, or achieved. Um, Generation Z, so the teenagers and children of today, they're 19% of the population, but when they make their own decisions, when they become adults and choose where they go and with what they engage, uh, where will they be as far as the church is concerned? They're not in the workforce yet, but within a decade they'll be one in eight workers. So some big generational transition points and, um, and all, all for us to do in the church as far as engagement. Can you make a comparison to say 50 years ago? Like in terms of, you know... The age groups. The age group thing? Um, no, I, I don't. I, there was no such sort of breakdown yeah, in numbers right. that, that I know of. You know, NCLS hasn't been around for as long. Um, I've got some ABS data which we can talk about how many people tick that Christianity box on the census form. Uh, now and then, um, but we don't have age breakdowns. Um, but but there are other figures I guess we could lay across this, a little bit tangential, but we could make some comparisons, and that is that, uh, that the majority of people, I've heard different figures, but we could probably all agree that the majority of people who, who become Christians and, and then become engaged in, in, in church um, do make a commitment, you know, in their, in their young before the, the end of their young adult years, we're going to at least say that. So I think we do have this critical decade um, through the teenage years and into the young adult years, I guess we would say currently from a, a life stage perspective, generation Y, it's in those years that we really have to connect. Um, and if we think about when people get saved, um, it's not as though people are getting saved in their 30s and 40s, 50s. In other words, it's hard to imagine this, this number increasing over time. If anything, we see a depletion of, of Gen Ys or a depletion of people as they move into their 20s and 30s, not an increase. So I, what I would say with this trend line from double represented to half represented is that it's starting to give us a, um, a bit of a projection. I put down here, you know, what, what influences them has, has definitely changed. Um, it's, it's a world of technology, it's a world of social media and it's a world of of new influences. Uh, this was a study we ran recently just looking at the number of friends that people have and we've all got roughly the same number of friends uh, but by the time you add in social media um, some are more popular than others generationally speaking. You know, the ba average baby boomer on Facebook has 64 Facebook friends. Average Gen Xer 
uh, on Facebook has 150 Facebook friends, so we feel pretty good about that. Uh, although Gen Y's make us all look pretty unpopular at 244 Facebook <laughs> friends, so that's the the trend line that we have. And, and this, this, but is that um, an indication of how many friends they have or the ability of boomers to use Facebook? <laughs> <laughs> I think it says a number of things there, doesn't it? And, and, and I guess the point of this is to say that um, you know, it's not as though they've got more friends in that traditional sense. They don't. That's what that first thing is. People who share their life, people that are part of their community who they can, who they can know and who they can be known uh, by is, is the same. But but there is a broader network of influences that, that can sway decisions and choices, and uh, that's an opportunity and a challenge. I um, did some work with um, a GP training organisation, and, and in part of the, the work they were saying that the real challenge that particularly the older doctors today have, the older GPs have, is that the younger generation come in, indeed all of us these days, and uh, we've already consulted Dr Google as they say, I mean a WebMD or some other place before we see the GP and uh, the patient comes in and has even the printout and says, Doc, you know, I think this is what I've got, I can't pronounce it but that's what I've got and if you wouldn't mind this is the medication I'd like. Um, and it's very confronting for these, these domain knowledge experts who, who feel you know, that, that they've got this knowledge and, and, and yet now you've got this empowered generation with technology that, that push back on that. I was sharing this with a mate, uh, this, this story that the doctors were telling me, the confrontation of you know, empowered patients. And he said, oh, he said, I don't bother you know, Googling before I go to the doctor. But he said, I was at the doctors recently telling him my conditions, and he started Googling. Uh, <laughs> that's when it gets scary, I think. But uh, it's, it's the empowerment, isn't it? We, we carry the information and the technology with us. Um, so, so what does that mean around spirituality? Just a few snapshot slides in terms of some shifts here. I think we would agree that that it's hard soil here in Australia. You know, it is hard to engage. It's not the, it's not the <coughs> same. We don't have that same culture as you find in the U.S. Um, in terms of just that the religious talk flows simply there. It, it's not the case here. It's a critical and it's a cynical um, environment in which we operate. Um, but, but at the same time, when someone is, is saying it, they generally believe it. So, so it's, it's true blue in that sense. But we're fast-paced, we're time-poor, we're juggling multiple roles. It's a fragmented, global, multicultural society. It's not one-size-fits-all. Even if we can drill down to our local area, there is incredible diversity within that area these days. And people are more informed and educated and savvy and streetwise. So it's not this, this one narrative that we have in this nation. It's not this, this simple gospel message that we can present, uh, people feel uh, more educated and articulate and, and aren't afraid to push back against, um, against uh, traditions. Uh, people are pragmatic in Australia. I think that's our, our, another aspect which creates differences not just from the US but even Europe there where there is a bit more self-reflection and a national reflection in, in some of the European cultures which we don't have here. We are very much, she'll be right mate. You know, attitude and just looking forward and getting on with it. And, it's and all good. It's all good. Yeah, that's right. No regrets. You know, get on with it. And uh, and that does make it hard, you know, in terms of the soil to, to talk about sin and guilt and reflect on that and, and solutions and eternity. And you know, we we have a really, um, I guess, the cynicism comes out in our humour. We Aussies love a good laugh. We we love a good G up, you know, and pull the leg and all of that. Um, but. And so even spiritual talk, you know, gets gets put into that category, you know, Bible bash from the, the big fella upstairs and all this sort of stuff. So to get serious and reflective and uh, um, uh, to get people to consider spiritual things is, is pretty hard. I, um, I had a couple of quotes here. We ran this study for Qantas and, uh, and it was... It was the spirit of Australia, so they wanted to look at the spirit of Australia, not in a spiritual sense, but just, a, I guess, a, a national sense, what are the values that, that sum us up? And a couple of the quotes, I think, summed up the Aussie psyche well. We had uh, Matt from Melbourne, and he, we had this website, people entered, we had thousands of, of people stating what sums us up as Australians, and Matt said, um, um, uh, where else in the world can you call a complete stranger, mate? And where else in the world do you get a day off for a horse race? And I liked the uh, the down to earth, you know, attitude of, of the Aussie, you know, recreation. Um, Phil from Glebe in Sydney 
um, writing about the, the Pacific Dawn cruise ship last year when it docked after its swine food troubles, and he said, I saw the passengers disembarking the ship chanting, Aussie, 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 oink, oink, oink. And uh, <laughs> I just love that, that Aussie, you know, have a, have a laugh when it's all falling apart attitude. And I hope we can all agree with what Peter out here in Tregea um, Mount Druitt said, and, uh, and that is, he, he wrote, um, waking up each day knowing that I don't live in Melbourne lifts my mood on a daily basis. <laughs> <laughs> hearty amen to, uh, to Peter. Yeah, that's the, that's the attitude. So, so we, we, we have a bit of pushback and, and interstate rivalry and all of that, and then we want to get serious, and it is a little harder. On the religious front sense, what, what box do people tick in the on the census form? In August this year, we'll all be doing it again, so uh, interesting to see the, the, the five-yearly update on that. But but last time's census, you still have more than three in five Australians ticking the Christianity box. Now, what that means is, is I'm sure, pretty broad, but still, it does show that there is a mainstream and strong connection with Christian things. Um, now, if all we do is... Now, read the Fairfax Press or watch the ABC. You would see, you would think that religion is dead and buried in Australia, at least Christianity. Um, but it's not the case, you know. Now, people aren't active and, and practicing and committed, but people have an affinity, to some extent, at least an affection for, for to some extent, uh, for Christian things. Certainly, a, there's a bit of a legacy there. It's not as though um, we, we've abandoned now. You go back to even as late as the early 1960s, and we had nine in ten Australians uh, affiliating themselves with Christianity. So we've lost three in ten in that time. Now you can see it's not as though they've gone to other religions, although you can see that uh, those other religions, you know, still single digits, but are growing from a low base. Islam particularly, but, but Buddhism you can see um, from fractional percentages uh, getting up. It's actually closer to 2%, we know, in Australia now, about half a million people. Uh, tick the, the Islam box these days. So so that's where we're at, but it's not as though the three in ten Aussies, the, the seven million that have you know, left Christianity have gone to another religion, it's that they've gone to no religion. They've gone, oh, don't worry about that, no religion or, or nothing stated or no mainstream religion. That's the, the state of spirituality in Australia today. So it's moved away from that religious sense. Put down here, where are, where are um, we at as far as the church brand is concerned? And this came from the we ran the Jesus All About Life research in the lead up to that campaign of um, 18 months ago or more now, and uh, and and we tested elements of Christianity in the church and, and what people thought, and a and a score of one or two was extremely positive or very positive. So so by the time we're talking about Jesus, people are pretty positive. It's definitely on that on that um, positive end of the scale. Three is getting you know okay about it, four is more on the negative and five is, is not positive at all so Jesus, of the elements te- we tested was strongly on the positive side, uh, did well, Christianity slipping down a little bit but okay, people tick the box on that and are fine with it by the time we're talking about religion you, you're more on the negative than the positive side uh, Bible is just very authoritarian to people and by the time we talk about the church, uh, people's perception is quite negative now, it's not that people have rejected the church as it is. They have rejected their perceptions of the church. We need to keep that in mind. They haven't experienced modern evangelical churches. In fact, a lot of people's understanding <coughs> is either no experience at all or they went to Mass when they were a kid or they had some you know, religious experience at a school or something. So it's not as though they're rejecting what we're on about, um, but there's a perception issue. And if you saw the Gruen Transfer's take on this research and the Jesus All About Life campaign, I think it was Todd Sampson who said it very well. He said, uh, he said if we use commercial language or, or retail language, he said they haven't. He said they like the product when it comes to the church. They like the product. They just don't like the retail outlet. And uh, so we've got to rebrand or, or work something fresh, re-engage in, in, in their perception of the retail outlet. This was a study we ran last year, just looking at Gen Ys and those who consider themselves religious, which is the majority of Gen Ys, will tick the religious box, or the spiritual box, I should say. Um, then, then we tried to, to define what, what, what does that mean? What does that spirituality mean to you? And we found a good number of continuous. That is, I'm committed to the particular religion that my parents or family brought me up in. So you've got a good swag that are, are following in that particular religion. 
Uh, the next one down are the changes. I chose a religion different to the religion I was brought up in. Good number, and I think that, Mark, there, I'll give you the exact percentages, but I think we're looking at about a, a 20%, 40% mark, I think, or a bit under, 15, 30. Um, but, uh, but you can see, you know, it's a lot less than and a fraction of that. The choosers, I chose a, a religion um, from being non-religious, being raised in nothing. Um, but the biggest of all are these creators. I currently am following a set of beliefs not fitting any singular or particular religion. That's where the majority of the Gen Ys place themselves, uh, in this do-it-yourself sort of world, in this spiritual smorgasbord world, uh, post-structural, you know, they'll a little bit of this and let's see a little bit of that and I'll, I'll create my own thing. So that's the context of the next generation. To bring us to trend number four, emerging influences. So what is shaping our world? We've said the population is changing, and we said the generations are passing the baton from one to the next. We said spiritual views have shifted. Well, what is influencing these decisions and choices in our world? Just a, a summary sort of slide on this. Well, we've moved from the tradition of the past and how it used to be and what grandpa was into or what my dad or mum brought me up into innovation and change. What's new? You know, just, just experientially speaking, it's not what we used to do that matters. It's, it's what's going on now that counts. You look at letterheads or even the entranceway of doors in the past when, we put, when they were established you know, as a company, as if that gave some sense of strength and, and legacy in history. No one does that these days because it's not what you were doing in the past. It's, it's how relevant are you today? It's this world of innovation. Um, just the innovation of these technologies is amazing. This is um, a study of Generation Z, today's teenagers, that we ran. And we, we looked at how much time they spend in different um, um, technology consumption. Now, it used to be said that teenagers watch three hours of TV a day. You can see on this, they're, they're watching half that amount of TV. We're down to just over an hour and a half of TV to, per day. So TV time's <coughs> declining while total screen time is rising. And there are a lot more of those screens that they are consuming these days. And, and those screens are now active screens. They're creating the content. They're, they're blogging. They're posting. They're uploading. They're downloading. They're, they've got the smart screens. They've got the video game screens. The lean forward TV as we discussed, 3D TV. So, so it's an experience and it's a connection means and it's it's multi-screening and so it's um, it's a very different environment that shapes them from the past. So we can't just rely on what used to work um, in this in this new consumption era. It's not the reputation that we have of ourselves or what the authority figures say. It's the recommendation of what the peer group says, uh, the, the Dr Google um, sort of thing. Um, you you come to buy a product. You might go to the, the company website to read what they say about it. But what will really influence your choice and what you really want to know is what the last 10 people who bought that product use that service have to say. You know, that's, that's in this world what, what we rely on, the social proof, the social validation. I grabbed a little screenshot from when we were booking some accommodation in Launceston earlier in the year. And um, you type accommodation Launceston Tasmania into Google Maps and I'll pop all the options. And uh, you can see all the little pins there. And as you scroll over the pins, to find out which hotel we're, we're, we're looking at or, or even reading down the side. We read quotes, not quotes put up there by the hotel. They've had nothing to do with it. It says four stars out of five for this quest. Positive, good location, staff were very helpful. This is my third time here. I'm not reading what the hotel is saying. I'm reading what the last person to stay there has to say about it. TripAdvisor comments. So the ratings, the influence, even before you get to the mainstream channel, is, uh, is, is given to you by the other users. And I think it's like that in the church. We have the websites, but what others are saying is key. It's not a sit and listen world, it's more a try and see, it's more of an activist world. You know, these described one here, but, but um, user generated content. <coughs> Doritos here, rather than making their own ad, they said, hey, you know, let's get the users to, to, to put up, you know, create their own ads, and, and, um, and so it'll go. Um, and it works. And, um, and there's that sense now of the new generation <coughs> wanting to own it and create it. Companies, we do it all the time with our market research. They no longer get any benefit in promoting a product. What they need is for the users to participate in the product, to, 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 to journey with them. And so we say to clients, don't design the product for them, then try to push it at them. No, design it with them, communicate it through them, um, get them on board, get them owning it. That's what Web 2.0 is all about. You own it, you drive it. The top websites, we, we can list them up, you know, top websites in our world, it would be um, Wikipedia and YouTube and, and Facebook and Twitter, uh, eBay, you know, all of those top sites that we, we all know. They're all sites, not where there is a company behind that site creating the content. In fact, the opposite. 
the company creates the space and the users create the content, post the videos or post the items for sale on eBay or post the profiles. That's, that's this user-generated world. So it's not the long term, it's the short term. It's not the content of what we're saying, it's, it's how we say it. Now obviously the content matters, the gospel matters, the theology matters, but I'm saying we can't forget this right-hand column because that's what's influencing a new generation. You know, it's a world of Wikipedia, not a world of Encyclopedia Britannica. It's, it's all changed, isn't it? It's the user generated. You know, who, who are the experts? It's no longer the, the Oxford Doms who, who used to be con- commissioned to write the articles on Wikipedia. I read established in 1768, you know, 200, almost 250 years of a legacy. And yet, um, I got the data down here. There's an article I was reading on it. Um, after nearly 250 years, um, it's 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 a minnow in the encyclopedic world. It's it's a world of Wikipedia. Encyclopedia Britannica has uh, 120,000 articles and pages. Wikipedia, after 10 years and eight full-time staff, has <laughs> 16 million articles in 262 different languages. Uh, so that's the power of the web community. And Encyclopedia Britannica gets 100,000 page views per month. Wikipedia gets 20 billion page views per month. So the legacy, the history, the, the official channels, the professors, that doesn't work today in terms of, of winning the day. It's a, it's a user-generated world. It's not the authority, therefore, it's the authenticity that we bring that is so key to connect. We, um, we conduct for readers to digest their most trusted research and in, um, in July they'll put out the results of 2011, so I can't give you those, but I can give you um, last year's results of... Um, of the most trusted professions. And it, I can tell you it hasn't changed much this year um, but um, from, from last year. But what it has changed from is, is a generation ago. <coughs> and the most trusted professions used to be the magistrate or the judge. They used to be the police constable. It used to be the principal. It used to be the local minister. Um, ambulance officers, firefighters, nurses, pilots, people who don't have structural authority in society but help us and, and we place our lives in their hands and they they, um, they are um, I guess people that we trust because they help others rather than bring any authority to the role. Teachers doing fairly well, police officers a little lower but I did find religious leaders were there. Now we're the forecast number 24 just <laughs> so not, not that trust we're on the leeward side of the 40 but slightly less reliable than weather forecasts, <laughs> which is your category. So just don't want to um, pop any bubbles there, but we've just got to understand where we sit in our world. Um, now, let's not give car salesmen a bad rap because they're no longer at the bottom of the list. I was encouraged to see. They used to be put down there, very disparaged as, uh, as, as the least trusted, but uh, that now belongs to telemarketers. <laughs> <laughs> I I would highlight that. Which brings me to this last trend, my last really point here, um, new structures. So we are in churches or plant churches that uh, perhaps are part of a denomination or, or certainly there's, there's some, some structures within the church, everything from parish councils to elders and deacons and ministers and senior ministers and the like. So, so what does it uh, mean in our world? Well, we were in that sort of world and structure and hierarchy and joining organisations and rising the ranks through seniority over time and now we're in this fluid approach and, and people come and people go and, and if you think about the workplace of today, you've got full-timers working alongside part-timers and contractors and casuals and, and it's, it's a flatter structure in many ways and it's fluid in, in approach and we manage even our churches in this sort of environment. It used to be very clear, are they part of the church or are they not part of the church? Putting together your church directory they're in or they're not in, it was clear. Now, are they with us or not? I don't know. They were here and they're not. And it's just, it's just a, how, how society works in the more uh, post-structural environment. Put up Rupert Murdoch's quote in Wall Street Journal recently. A newspaper mogul, as it's been called, but he says, I don't care what platform our news appears on. If it's on printed paper, if it's on the web or mobile or whatever, he's not rusted onto the newspaper. He, he, he's on about news, but the distribution of that news... He's just going to use whatever's going to work and have a revenue model. Um, and so it's not just for him about the paper, even though he's an old newspaper <coughs> man, he'll move with the times. And that's the post-structural thinking that I think uh, entrepreneurs survive through. So from a hierarchical leadership approach with functional teams and structures and chains of command to, to flat structures, that's, that's the expectation of people these days, <coughs> leadership across an organisation. So my, 
my final slide is, well, how do we communicate then in these post-structural times? What, what gets the cut through? How do we engage? And, and I think if we go back to the 20th century, it was about debate and dialogue and mm. the age of reason. It was about Josh McDowell and evidence that demands a verdict and apologetics and, and, and proofs and debates. And, and I, think, I think we have an educated society. So, so in many ways, that is, is still there. And I don't want to say that, that it's all emotion. But if all we're offering is a cognitive journey, we'll end up with a grievous. You know, we'll prove the point. They'll nod their head. They'll say, yeah, I get it here. But, but the question is, do they get it here? So it can't just engage at the head level. It's got to engage at the heart level. Now, conversion is, is a work of the Holy Spirit, of course, and, and there's, you know, this is a bit reductionist. But, but if we just think, I guess, um, sort of didactically, didactically through this, you know, if, if all we're doing is offering doctrine or, or, or theology and instruction and content and, and apologia, then we'll end up with agrees. And, and what the 21st century has given us is this vertical axis. It's always been there, of course, but it's, it's validated. So the internet is, is more a, an emotional tool than a rational one. It's a social tool. It's a tool of connections. It's a visual tool. It's music. It's, it's, it's content delivered in a multimodal way. It's not an information tool in that traditional sense. And so... So is advertising, it's about brands, it's about that heart connection, ownership, participation, web 2.0 stuff. So it's gone emotive. Now I'm saying if all we offer is an emotive experience, if all we offer is the feel good and the story and the, um, the testimony, um, as powerful as that is, we'll end up with seekers saying, well, I'm excited and I'm inspired and I'm passionate, I'm not really sure what the next step is or what he's going on about or whether I believe it, but I'm excited. Now that's, that's not, the, uh, not the outcome either. It's head and heart. I mean, it's it's the rational and the relational. It's the it's the cognitive and the visceral. You know, we need both of those. I'm saying, and that's that's this top right corner. The true believers, you know, they understand what what's going on, and, and they they connect in the way it's communicated. Now, in the communication, we're going to get disconnected both head and heart, and so I call them the hecklers that push back. And if we think about the hecklers in our communication, or even with our church planning processes uh, I'm saying these are the people who not only disagree with what we're saying or, or the content but they disagree with how we're saying it or our approach there's, there's an energy that given to that heckling that comes from a relational disconnection and, uh, and we've got to keep that in mind whenever you, know, you look at the um, New Testament sermons I'm just having a look at, um, at the first sermon recorded in Acts 2 after at Pentecost Peter's uh, sermon, it's um, it's a classic because he is, and, and my point is that this is nothing new with us to say head and heart, but I just want to highlight it but he, he is connecting with them, you know, the, the Jews that have gathered there on this on this feast day and, and he's talking about what David said and he's quoting Joel and he's talking about some of their their Old Testament prophets that they clearly understood and connected with, so, he, so he's on the cognitive journey but then he's sharing the story, and you yourselves you know, took Jesus and, and crucified him. And, and what was the result? They were, they were convicted both head and heart. I, I love that. Um, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter's, Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. You know, the great sermons and teaching, and I think, I think ministry models... You know, have that have that message, have the have the logic, have the process, but at the same time they engage, they connect, they inspire. And I think we need to, in an educated society, remember this. But in with all the emotional and, and relational tools of today, not forget this. And when we get both, I think we've we've got there.